Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at kgerredux, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X, at gmail.com. All right, today is November 12th. 2022. And in today's episode, I want to talk about an article that came out day before yesterday. I think it was late in the day in The Athletic about a Virginia Tech football player who was suspended by the NCAA back in the fall for placing some Mickey Mouse bets on professional sports. He wasn't betting on his own sport. He wasn't even betting on college sports. And the total amount of his bets was around $400. And he did those transactions on a betting app called FanDuel, which apparently is very popular and well mainstreamed now into the sports betting world in the US. And uh, this article came out in The Athletic and It was an interesting article. It gave you the basic facts and really, I think, tried to portray this football player as a victim. And I agree with that. But what was interesting about that article is that it missed some really important aspects of the NCAA, Power Five, and big-time sports media's mainstreaming and normalization of betting on college sports. And all those interested stakeholders have positioned themselves to capitalize on the emerging sports betting market that is growing at a breathtaking pace. And this new market could mean unimaginable riches for the big-time, powerful conferences and the NCAA and then all of their surrounding corporate interests. And while the NCAA self-righteously destroyed this athlete's final year, at Virginia Tech, they are at the very same time in bed financially in a 10-year contract with one of the biggest companies in the gambling industry, Genius Sports. And I'm going to talk about Genius here, and I've done some episodes on that. I'm going to refer back to those as well. But I just want to make a couple of observations before I get into the facts of this case, the absurdity of it, and then the profound and disgusting hypocrisy of it. Hypocrisy doesn't even fully capture what the NCAA, Power Five, and all their media interests are doing with sports betting. This is active corruption, and it's playing out in front of us, and nobody's talking about it. The Athletic did this article, and that was great, but you didn't hear boo from Sports Illustrated. You didn't hear boo from ESPN. You didn't hear boo from Sportico, at least not yet. And that leads me to my first preliminary observation. And that is that the reason you haven't heard from these powerful mainstream sports media outlets is that they are all in different ways up to their eyeballs in the gambling industry, the sports gambling industry, and the normalization process to get that market into college sports. The second observation I want to make is that when I talk about these issues in college sports, I do my best not to portray these people doing these ridiculous things and these corrupt things in college sports as bad people. I've talked about the system. I've talked about the values of the system and how those have defined the climate and culture of a lot of the institutions that are engaged in the grand college sports hypocrisy. But I believe by and large, the people who are in this system have convinced themselves that they are doing God's work on behalf of student athletes and I think there's a lot of denial in that. And that goes back really to the propagandization of some of the mythology in college sports. And that goes back really 100 years. And then Walter Byers really institutionalized that. And then as the value of the football and men's basketball products grew, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries had to find new and creative ways to try to rationalize running professional sports under the umbrella of higher education. So I think come to that through a process of rationalization. And of course, that rationalization doesn't take a lot of effort when you're making a seven-figure salary or more, (laughs) 
or your your livelihood and your mortgage and your kids' college education depends on the job you have in an athletics department. So I understand all of those dynamics. At the same time, there are certain aspects of what's happening in college sports right now that are intentional. And I believe that these people have to acknowledge that they are participating in active, open, destructive corruption when it comes to the normalization of college sports betting. They know exactly what they're doing and they know why they're doing it. And they are lying to the public about that by publicly preening and posturing and still professing to be the guardians of the integrity of college sports and protecting it from all of the terrible influences of sports gambling. And remember, the NCAA really built its enforcement and infractions authorities in part, in large part, on a point-shaving scandal in the early 1950s. And Walter Byers, in his 1995 book on sportsmanlike conduct, he wrote a chapter on that case and said with some pride that that case against uh, Kentucky, University of Kentucky basketball team, was the very first infractions and enforcement file that was ever opened at the NCAA. And he stared down the University of Kentucky. And so the sports betting boogeyman has really been a foundational value behind the NCAA's entire infractions and enforcement business model. And obviously, point shaving is bad stuff, and that is the ultimate betrayal to the game. But the way that the NCAA has propagandized its anti-gambling campaign over 70 years, there really isn't any distinction among the, the types of gambling that you might do. And they have a zero-tolerance policy on sports gambling, and they have had a zero-tolerance policy on anybody at the NCAA or under its jurisdiction having any association with anyone in the gambling industry. And to continue to profess that to the outside world through ridiculous punishments, like what the NCAA did to Alan Tisdale, this Virginia Tech football player, it's indefensible. And then I guess the last preliminary observation I want to make is that when I started this podcast and I was thinking about the right name for it, I was pulled back to some of the thoughts I had when I initially re-engaged back in 2018 with athletes' rights issues. And I was really deep in the weeds in some of these antitrust cases. And then I was looking at what was happening on the public relations side and the obvious tension and the profound hypocrisy between what the NCAA was putting out for public relations purposes and what they were actually doing and saying and the positions that they were taking in their scorched earth litigation campaign to try to end the athletes' rights movement. And that I was really focusing on Austin. This was, Austin was just coming into its own as a threat to the NCAA. And you had the NCAA using that case really as a first strike weapon in the appellate process to try to get the antitrust immunity that it so desperately wants. And they wanted to get it from the U.S. Supreme Court. And I, I was just reading their briefs, reading the evidence in the case, and then looking at how they pitched the case. And it, and it was just dishonest as hell. Because to this day, they deny that they were even seeking antitrust immunity in the Austin case. And obviously they were, because that's how the U.S. Supreme Court, in a unanimous 9-0 decision, analyzed that case. The sole issue, the sole legal issue, really, in that case was whether or not the NCAA was above the law when it came to free competition laws. And they wanted to be placed above the law because that's how they roll. That's how they see themselves. And it's that kind of arrogance, I think, that drives the profound hypocrisies that you see with this sports betting market. And I view the tactics that the NCAA and the Power Five, in conjunction with all their corporate partners, this, they, these people are just joined at the hip. It is one big, incestuous, disgusting ball of conflict of interest. And these are powerful interests. And they're going to do whatever the hell they need to do to get to the next dollar. And they can rationalize that through all these mythological principles. But the fact remains, they are motivated by money. The system is motivated by money. And it is moving along. And it is like, a, it's a juggernaut. It's unstoppable. And I was, as I was looking 
at the tactics that the NCAA and the Power Five and all their corporate interests were using to gaslight the public about the truth of their business model, I'm thinking, how in the world can they get away with this? Doesn't anybody know what's really going on here? And that really motivated me to continue to research and write and talk about all these things. But I named my podcast The Big Amateurism Monologues because all of these tactics that the NCAA and Power Five have used to try to impose their will on decision makers to protect their business interests are virtually identical to the tactics that Big Tobacco has used, that Big Pharma has used, and now that Big Gambling is using. And Big Gambling is getting bigger and bigger bigger and bigger. So you have the mindset of the bigs and it is amoral. There, there are no values underneath a business like that. And the difference between the NCAA and big amateurism on the one hand, and then big tobacco, big pharma, big gambling, is that we now all understand that the sin bigs are dispensing death products and destruction products. I think we all know at an intuitive level that all three of those products could kill us in one way or another or destroy our lives in one way or another. But we rationalize engaging with them. And it's in that that area of human nature where these bigs operate at a very sophisticated level. And later on in the episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about a big tobacco example that really puts an exclamation point on the sophistication of the manipulation tactics that the bigs have used to play on American fears and anxieties and human nature to expand markets. And it's fascinating. But you have some of the same things happening right now in the normalization of gambling and college sports. What's different about big amateurism is that it is built around values, values that we have internalized culturally that give us warm, fuzzy feelings and associations, and they're very powerful. The associations that come from the sin products are really addiction responses, and they're negative. And there aren't really any values underneath those products. I guess with Big Pharma had the anti-pain campaign that began, I don't know, 30 years ago. And I had an interesting insight to that because my wife is a physician in a big academic healthcare setting. And we've had some interesting conversations about that as this opioid epidemic has played out. And even at the most sophisticated research medical centers on the planet bought into this anti-pain campaign that was being fraudulently peddled by companies like Purdue Pharma. And so you had some of the smartest people on the planet in the medical profession buying the garbage that was being sold by Purdue Pharma. We're so gullible. We're so susceptible to that kind of mass manipulation. And the bigs have employed the most sophisticated industrial psychologists and researchers and public relations firms to play on all of those vulnerabilities. And the National Collegiate Athletic Association and the Power Five conferences and all of these sports media outlets and all the broadcast media outlets are no different. They're playing the same game. But instead of selling nicotine or opioids or slot machines, they're selling amateurism the student athlete, and the collegiate model. And those mythologies have been so well propagandized over the last 70 years, and we've internalized them as cultural values in a way that we can't look at those and say, wait a minute, are they causing harm? And that's a question that the beneficiaries of the status quo business model don't want asked, and they sure as hell don't want anybody answering that question. That just speaks to the power of the propaganda that surrounds this entire business model and the insulation provided by a compliant sports media that's drinking from the same trough. Let me just give you the real quick facts here that they came out. And the only reason we know about this case is that the head coach at Virginia Tech, a guy named Brent Pry, I think he's in his first year at Virginia Tech. But he made this public and the senior compliance officer in the athletics department, his name is Gwen, I believe, he kind of felt the same way that Pride did, that this kid got screwed and that this was a Mickey Mouse violation and that the NCAA had no business bringing the hammer down on this kid. But the way this came to light was 
At the beginning of every year, the NCAA requires schools to conduct an educational class. And it lasts an hour, maybe more. It's designed to cover the NCAA's butt and the conference and the institution's butt. So they go through all these things that would be a violation of NCAA rules. And they talk about betting. That's one of the priority items on the list because it's been the boogeyman in college sports going back to the early 1950s. So Mr. Tisdale's watching this. And one of the slides in the PowerPoint was a graphic of FanDuel. They had the FanDuel logo, and they used that as an example of impermissible betting. And so Tisdale's like, ooh, oops, because he had been placing bets, $1, $2 bets, Mickey Mouse bets that totaled $400 on FanDuel. And as I mentioned earlier, he wasn't betting on his own team. He wasn't betting on football. He wasn't even betting on college sports. He was betting on the NBA. And I guess it's also important to note that when Mr. Tisdale placed these bets, he was of legal age. He was over 21. And the bets were placed in the state of Virginia, which has legalized sports betting. He was complying with the laws of the state of Virginia when he placed these bets. So he goes to his coach and said, coach, I think I may have screwed up here. I really didn't understand that this kind of activity would be a problem, but I saw that slide and I just wanted to talk to you about it. Did the right thing. Mr. Tisdale did the right thing. He did exactly what the NCAA claims they want athletes and institutions to do. And so much of their infractions and enforcement powers are built around self-reporting and self-policing and putting the onus on the member institutions to understand the rules and then comply with them. That's precisely what Virginia Tech was doing. They did this by the book. This should be held up as the exemplar of exactly how to handle a self-reporting issue. And honestly, if Tisdale had said nothing to the coach or if Virginia Tech had decided, we're just not going to report, this is BS, there's very little chance that anyone would ever have known that this took place. Tisdale does the right thing. He goes to his coach. His coach goes to compliance. They do the right thing. They self-report to the NCAA. And the NCAA turns around and comes in and ruins this kid's senior year, or he actually he's a fifth year student, and it's his last year. And they declared him ineligible for most of the season. And the kid was just heartbroken. It was just awful what they did. And I just note this too. When the NCAA did this constitutional makeover, a centerpiece of that was sending enforcement and infraction authority down to the divisions. And some of the this fluffy but dishonest BS that was thrown into the Constitution about wanting to have a more fair infractions and enforcement process, and we don't want to punish innocent athletes, and we want to be fair. We want to rely on common sense in our infractions and enforcement decisions. And importantly, we want the punishment to fit the crime. And implied in that is an element of proportionality. And I talked about that quite a bit when I was talking about this constitutional makeover and, and the importance of those new values in the infractions and enforcement process. And this case makes a mockery of those principles. They just threw that under the bus. This is a textbook example of the insanity of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. And this runs through the national office boys in infractions and enforcement, the same corrupt broken system that the Commission on College Basketball tried to dismantle after its review in 2018 of the basketball scandal. They're a rogue, secret government that operates without any accountability, particularly in light of the 1988 Tarkanian decision in the U.S. Supreme Court, which said that the NCAA enforcement and infractions process wasn't subject to due process requirements. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. And they've done that. And they've run roughshod over the lives of innocent athletes for decades. And they take pride in it. But when I read that story, one of my first thoughts was, where the hell is Greg Sankey on this? Mr. Let's remake infractions and enforcement. Where was Julie Cromer? the co-chair of the Transformation Committee, and she and Sankey, the co-chairs of that committee, uh, they're supposed to be remaking 
the infractions and enforcement process at Division I. That was the whole purpose of the constitutional makeover and sending that authority down to the divisions. No, where are the members of the NCAA governing board saying, this is not what we intended. What happened here is not consistent with what we tried to do in this constitutional makeover when it came to infractions and enforcement. Those people are sitting on their hands and they have swallowed their microphones. The microphones they make quite liberal use of when they are peddling their false narratives to try to shut down the athletes' rights movement through protective federal legislation. This would be a golden opportunity to really look at an issue in real time and say, this is not the way we want to do it. We got this wrong. We need to do our best to make it right. And we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. No, that's nowhere. And honestly, when you look, and this goes this big amateurism, big tobacco analogy, these people are so good putting out propaganda in public that says one thing and then doing the exact opposite behind the scenes. And there aren't many people who have gone through and read all of the minutes of this transformation committee. I am one of them. And when you look at the work that this transformation committee's done on infractions and enforcement, and that was one of their key charges of this committee, was to really look at changing infractions and enforcement through the lens of these new values of the Constitution. But when you look at what they have recommended, they are really looking to enhance their enforcement capabilities so that they can do to athletes precisely what the NCAA infractions and enforcement process did to Alan Tisdale. And those recommendations have a very questionable history because they allegedly were the product of the NCAA Infractions Process Committee, and they were pitched as like these independent recommendations that this committee had given a lot of thought to, and they wanted to run it through the Transformation Committee. And the Transformation Committee says, yes, they did great work. Well, Greg Sankey is the co-chair of this Transformation Committee. Guess what other committee he sits on? The Infractions Process Committee. So Greg Sankey, it's a very small committee. It's supposed to have nine members. It only has seven. And Greg Sankey is the most powerful person in college sports. So he's on that committee and he's making recommendations to himself. But one of those recommendations that I don't think has yet been adopted by the Division One Board of Directors, I think they're holding up on this because, boy, this would be a bad look right now. But to show you where they're headed and how they think about these things, they wanted to include as a new rule in infractions and enforcement that whoever's doing the investigation would have the ability to compel athletes and their parents and their family members and anyone associated with that athlete to turn over their electronic devices to the NCAA or Division I secret police, this police force that operates with zero accountability. And if the families the athletes, the people close to the athlete, didn't turn over their electronic devices, or if they were using another provision related to these disappearing apps where you communicate and then they just automatically disappear. If there's evidence that you used one of those apps or you refused to turn over your device, then there would be a presumption that you were guilty of whatever it is they thought was on that device and whatever the investigation related to. How do you defend that? And there's no legal standard that applies to the NCAA that relates to probable cause or reasonable suspicion or any threshold standard before you can conduct the equivalent of a wiretap or a search warrant. This is like a search warrant, an administrative search warrant. And the consequences of not complying are really draconian. And it's also important to understand that the NCAA infractions and enforcement staff and the investigation arm of that staff, they deal in rumor, innuendo, rank speculation, anonymous accusations, and confidential informants. And if the NCAA got those authorities, whenever those are put on the table, and I think it's just a matter of time, the question is when they think they can get away with it. But when those new authorities are approved, the NCAA can just go hunting and they can, with the thinnest of quote unquote evidence, they could start issuing their search warrants to athletes. And there's no telling what that would turn up. This is a police state and the athletes have no rights. And that police state and its abusive tactics fall disproportionately on African-American athletes in football and men's basketball because that's where the money is. That's where the attention is. And that's where the most vulnerable participants in this overall marketplace live. I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but Mr. Tisdale is African-American. And in that article 
he says that one of his motivations in gambling was that he needed money. It seems irrational. It seems silly that you would throw good money after bad, but a lot of people who gamble think that way. And that's one of the ways that the gambling industry wants people to think about the allure of betting. And they pump all this propaganda about gamble responsibly. They want you to get hooked, just like Big Pharma wants you to get hooked, just like Big Tobacco wants you to get hooked. It is an addiction industry, and it thrives on addiction and irrational decision-making. And the house always wins. We know that. So I want to take this decision, this absurd, indefensible, unjust, corrupt decision, and sit it against what the NCAA and the Power Five and all of their corporate interests have been plotting since 2018. And the reason that 2018 is significant is that that was the year that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a federal anti-gambling law commonly referred to as PASPA. And that stands for the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. It was struck down on constitutional grounds. And the athletic identifies that case as an important inflection point because as a result of that law being struck down, you had states being able to enter the gambling space. And since that law was declared unconstitutional, I think you have over 30 states now that have legalized sports gambling. And it's really accelerated because of that single event. But when they talk about this case in the media, nobody talks about who filed that case. <laughs> That case was filed in 2014 by the National Collegiate Athletic Association in conjunction with professional sports leagues. They sued the state of New Jersey, who was about to legalize gambling on college sports and, and professional sports. Under this federal law, which was passed in 1992, private parties who were affected had standing to sue under that law to enforce it. And so you had the NCAA and the sports leagues you know, rushing in with all their sanctimony on their anti-gambling propaganda to say, no, this is just a terrible thing. We can't let this happen. No. So the state of New Jersey fought it and they litigated that thing to death in 2018. The Supreme Court said, no, this is not constitutional. They, they didn't say that you couldn't legislate to prohibit college sports betting, but the way that Congress went about doing that in that 1992 law was unconstitutional. So as a consequence of that, the NCAA and these professional leagues were faced with a dilemma. Do they try to go back to Congress and use their influence to try to get a new bill that wouldn't have any constitutional problems? Or do they just say, screw it, if you can't beat them, join them? And that's exactly what they did. So almost immediately, the NCAA enters into a 10-year contract with Genius Sports, one of the largest gambling companies in the gambling industry. And we don't know what the terms of that contract are. The NCAA, on the few occasions that it's been asked to explain why the hell they're in a contract with the gambling industry, they said, look, this is no harm, no foul, and we aren't providing them any data that goes to sports casinos or sports books and all that stuff. So Genius is in this market. It's really a data acquisition market, and it's a very competitive market right now because there are all these companies positioning themselves to try to get exclusive data deals with sports leagues. And in professional sports, the NBA is partnered with Genius Sports, and they actually have an ownership interest in Genius Sports. And they these professional sports organizations get paid hundreds of millions of dollars by outfits like Genius Sports to be the exclusive data source for the information that will then be sold to casinos and sportsbook. So Genius is kind of the middleman. They collect the data and we don't know exactly what the data is. And if you have an exclusive deal with an institution that claims to have ownership interest in that data, that is gold. And these companies will pay whatever it takes to get that business and get that exclusivity and get that data. And then as the sports betting market grows, there's no telling how much those deals could be worth. In March of this year, right before the March Madness tournament, and that timing was important, I think, you had the Mid-American Conference announce that they were in a deal with, guess who? Genius Sports. And it was just a MAC conference deal. We don't know the terms. We don't know how much money they got paid. They won't disclose that, just like the NCAA won't disclose the terms of their deal. 
And we can only rely on rumor and speculation from people who claim to have knowledge of what that contract says, but it is selling player data to sports books. So the purpose of that contract was for Genius Sports to get data from the institutions in the MAC and then use that to place information into the sports betting market that would be relevant to setting sports betting lines. I think that's one of the primary purposes of having that information and, and having it from the original source makes it trustworthy. That enhances the value of these exclusive contracts. But in none of these deals or any deals that might be done in the future, is anybody asking the fundamental question of who the hell owns this data? What makes the Mid-American Conference think that they have an exclusive ownership interest in personal data that may even be biometric data that is owned by these athletes? And the reason is that you have a compliant sports media that doesn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole because they want to get rich off the gambling industry too. And I guess I ought to, at this point, identify the episodes that I have done on sports betting. The first episode I did on this was in March of 2022, March 23rd, and it's episode 106 titled, Want to Bet? The NCAA's U-Turn on College Sports Gambling. And then on April 15th, I did episode 111, titled Tom McMillan Channels Chicken Little for University Trustees. And that was an interview, panel discussion, actually, that Tom McMillan sat for in front of an organization of university trustees. And McMillan is the CEO of this Lead One organization, which is a 501c6 nonprofit that basically is a trade association for athletics director interests. And they shill for the commercial interests of these Power Five and Group of Five athletics directors. And some of the stuff they put out is just really comical. They try to put out white papers and quote-unquote research, but they're infomercials in one way or another. In this, this panel discussion, McMillan's talking about the all of the dangers of sports betting. And it was I was just listening to this thinking, what the hell is this guy saying? Because when you go or when you went to the Lead One website then in April of 2022, they have their partners, all their corporate partners listed, the people that they're associated with. And they had Genius Sports as a partner. And then this company called Intain, which is one of the biggest sports betting companies in the world, not just the United States, in the world. And those two companies represent everything that the NCAA has been criticizing and demonizing since the 1950s. So I went back to the Lead One website to pull up some of the information from these corporate sponsors. And guess what? Genius Sports and Entain are no longer on the corporate partner list. <laughs> so guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. And your new partnership list looks a lot more woke and while I was on the site, I was just surfing. It was entertaining. If you see these issues the way that I do, and if you've researched them the way that I do, and you look at the material that's on this Lead One website, it's like a spoof of an organization that's trying to be taken seriously on, on college sports. And so McMillan, McMillan's a very smart guy. He has an incredible resume, and I, I like him. I'm not criticizing him personally, but he has a podcast or an interview format. So they have some videos. And so I was looking through that and I see, well, while Entain, this massive mega sports gambling company is no longer listed as a partner, McMillan recently did an interview with the senior vice president of Entain. And to me, it was like a, a Saturday night live skit. It was like an infomercial that you might watch at two in the morning. And McMillan was asking these self-serving questions and actually tried to say, well, is there any conflict here between gambling and college sports and the values of college sports? And it was just hilarious to me. And maybe I'll link to that. It's worth listening to. But while Entain may not be a corporate sponsor, Lead One's still pumping their propaganda through interviews like that. And where that interview landed was, look, yeah, gambling might be bad, but we're in it to make money and the house always wins. That's <laughs> kind of how I interpreted that interview. They had some guy with this crazy accent. It sounded like it was a mix of European dialects, but he was a piece of work. He's the kind of guy you'd love to have a hamburger with. But one of the ironies of what McMillan was doing there, what Lead One was doing there, is that they're working both sides of this fence. They're trying to portray their concerns about gambling, while behind the scenes, they are in bed 
They are literally snuggled up and caressing the sports gambling industry. And one of the greatest ironies now, when I went to the new website, looked at the lead one board of directors, and it's overwhelmingly male. So of the FBS athletics directors, 91% are male. It's overwhelmingly white male. There are, I think, 18 members of the board of directors. And let me see. I pulled some demographics here. Let me just see if I can find them. Okay, here we go. There are 18 voting members of the board of directors, two ex officio, including, I have to note this too. I didn't point this out in episode 111, but an ex officio officer of the board of directors of Lead One is none other than Stan Wilcox, who is head of the NCAA Regulatory Affairs Department. And McMillan's the other ex officio member, but Stan Wilcox works for the freaking NCAA. What the hell is he doing on the board of directors of Lead One, who is shilling the economic, commercial, professional interests of FBS athletics directors. And in his role as the vice president of regulatory affairs, for which he got paid $1,372,706 in 2020, according to the NCAA's uh, 990 nonprofit tax returns. And that was the COVID year. That was the year that they had about half of the revenue they usually have because they canceled the March Madness tournament. And March Madness is 90% of their $1.1 billion annual revenue stream. But not, it didn't affect all the Stan's salary, apparently. But here's Wilcox, and he oversees all NCAA regulatory functions, including academic and membership affairs, the eligibility center, and enforcement. And I talked about Wilcox back when I was doing an analysis of that NC State enforcement and infractions case arising from the basketball scandal. And he was out there making public comments to try to spin the public narrative to make it seem like they were going to really stick it to all these schools, including NC State. And those comments were in direct violation of NCAA rules. And the system backed him up on that. But you just have to wonder, what the hell does he have to do with lead one? You know, you got these 18 voting members, 78% are men, 89% are white. 67% are white men. But they have the symbolic gender equity face on this. And that is Heather Likes, who is the AD at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh. And the irony of that is just rich, very rich. Because Heather Likes was taken to the microphone in July of 2020 in the Senate Judiciary Committee to make an impassioned speech against gambling on college sports. And she was all on her high horse. And remember, this is 2020. She didn't mention a word of the NCAA's contract with Genius Sports. And after that Mid-American Conference deal was announced in March of this year, Heather Likes was nowhere to be found. She's now the chair of the Lead One Board of Directors, which is in bed with the sports gambling industry. And they've tried to erase that from the website, but it doesn't change the reality of the fact that they are all on board with sports gambling because it could wind up being a multi-billion dollar boon to the Power Five conferences. And in one of these articles that goes back to March of 2022, a Sportico writer, actually the only writer who wrote anything on what was happening with Genius Sports and this MAC deal. He said that these kinds of deals with Genius Sports at the Power Five conference level, whenever they get into the market, could be worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a lot of money. And I guess I should also note that Julie Cromer, who is the athletics director at Ohio University, and they're in the MAC, she is also on the lead one board of directors. And the reason that's important is that Ms. Cromer was selected among all FBS athletics directors to join Greg Sankey as the co-chair of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. So there's Julie doing the righteous work for the Transformation Committee through the principles of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model, sitting on Lead One's Board of Directors and her conferences in knee-deep already. With Genius Sports. And it's my belief, and I guess this ties back into this other episode. I lost track there. I did an episode then, 112, titled, Is the Mid-American Conference's Sports Betting Deal a Trojan Horse for Power 5 Mega Deals? That was on April 20th of 2022. But in late April, 
this Sportico guy, he put up an article saying that the Mid-American Conference was asking for quote-unquote clarity from the NCAA and whether their contract with Genius Sports violates NCAA anti-sports betting rules. <laughs> you know, again, you just can't make this stuff up. They were already in the contract. But it was my belief, and the title of the episode suggests this, that what was happening with the MAC was nothing more than a Trojan horse for getting the Power Five conferences lined up, teed up to jump into these mega deals with an outfit like Genius Sports. There are some other actors in the market, but Genius has kind of risen to the top along with Sports Radar. So this is just the normalization process. And then on May 3rd of 2022, I did episode 115 called College Sports Janice Faced Values, in which I talked about a, a number of things. But one of them was a decision, an unpublished decision. Again, this came through the same guy at Sportico, and he had a, an anonymous source and a, you know, a guy who knew a guy kind of thing that said that the NCAA had blessed the Max contract with Genius Sports. But the point of my emphasis on sports betting is that this is the big tobacco playbook, the big pharma playbook. And they are trying to cover their tracks to hide the fact that they have laid the foundation to exploit the sports betting market. And they are already in it and they won't talk about it. And the media is not asking any questions. And when you pay very close attention to how the NCAA is trying to position its anti-gambling propaganda, you can see that in very, very subtle ways, they are trying to use language that can give them a little bit of wiggle room to move into this space. Because they're talking about how states are getting into the space and it's you know just a new market and it's evolving and they want to be able to change with the times and all this happy malarkey. But that's not what the rules say. The rules are zero tolerance. And what they did to Alan Tisdale was zero tolerance. And it was also zero integrity and zero common sense and completely inconsistent with the propaganda they've been putting out through the work of this Constitution Committee and then this Transformation Committee. But I want to talk about one tactic that was used by Big Tobacco back in the 1950s and into the 1960s, and how the NCAA is using the exact same tactic right now to position themselves to play both sides of the college sports betting issue. And that is taking an obviously destructive product like gambling, and you use the fear and anxiety that surrounds that product or that activity. And then you capitalize on that fear and turn it into economic opportunity. And in my discussion of this tactic, I am going to rely on a book that I recently read. And it's written by an academician named Keith Waylu, and it's called Pushing Cool. And Waylu is African-American. And the theory of the book was how big tobacco was pushing the menthol cigarette movement in black communities, lying about the dangers. And I actually went to a talk that Waylu gave at Duke a couple months ago, and it was really interesting. And I was really intrigued by some of the themes that he talked about. And so I bought the book and I read it, and it just really reinforced the analogy between the tactics of big tobacco and what's going on in big amateurism right now. But he talks about how the industry responded in the 1950s and 1960s to the growing and irrefutable evidence that there was a link between cigarette smoking and various forms of cancer. And as the product was being challenged and attacked as unhealthy and dangerous, the industry turned to some of the most sophisticated industrial psychologists who had expertise in identifying the frailties in the human psyche and human nature to exploit them for commercial purpose. And one of his central themes is that when dealing with products that instilled some kind of fear and anxiety in consumers, you would go broke unless you made them feel safe and secure. And that was your primary objective when you were dealing with a product like that, whatever it is. And as the association and the correlation and ultimately causation became irrefutable between cigarette smoking and cancer, you had the industry trying to find ways to manipulate the message so that people could have some false sense of 
security, and safety. And they did that in a variety of ways. So instead of outright denying that cigarettes were harmful or that cigarettes caused cancer, they played on the, that element of human nature where people who want to engage in a behavior knowing it's not good for them will look to and cling to any rationalization that makes them feel better about that bad choice. What did the cigarette industry do? They started going with filtered cigarettes. So remember back in the day, cigarettes didn't have filters. And that came in the 1950s as you had the cancer concerns growing. And then you had the low tar and nicotine cigarettes. And then you had the menthol cigarettes. And you had brands that were developed and marketed specifically in this kind of harm reduction mentality so that people who wanted to smoke and just needed some permission to do it, that they could feel safe or at least safer. And when you go back and you look at tobacco advertisements from, say, the 1920s and the 1930s, before the cancer risk really was on the table, you had similar dynamic when people were experiencing the symptoms of smoking, like coughing and throat irritation and gagging and just all the things that the human body does when it responds to a toxic foreign element. And so what they would do is market a brand of cigarettes using physicians to, to try to sell the argument, that brand of cigarettes was, quote unquote, less irritating. And I have some pictures in my archives of some of those advertisements from the 1920s and 1930s that have physicians with a smiling face in their white coats saying, nine out of 10 doctors say that XYZ brand is less irritating. And those strategies have been effective. And they've actually led to entirely new products and new markets for big tobacco. You know, that's how they think about the business model. They, they don't give a damn how many people die. They don't give a damn about the lies that they tell about the implied safety of the new product. They are in it to make money. And I'm sure that there are people that work for big tobacco and who have been part of some of these fraudulent campaigns who go to church every Sunday and they pay their taxes and they obey the laws and they're perceived as good members of the community. As the products are normalized, these sin products and the death products are normalized, so are the people who promote those products. And that's just part of the way the world works, particularly in in America, where it doesn't matter really what you're selling, so long as you sell it well, you make a bunch of money, and then you are everybody's honored guest. But I want to turn to how the, the NCAA and the Power Five and the media have gone about trying to position sports gambling in college through the lens of trying to make people feel safe and secure, and that this is a good thing. And they've done it in two ways. And in March, when the NCAA was gearing up for the March Madness tournament, there was an op-ed that was done in Sportico by a guy named David Levy. And Levy is the chairman of Genius Sport. And he writes this interesting article, and it was titled, The New Era of March Madness, Back and Better Than Ever. And it stated March 22nd of 2022. The hook, Levy's hook is, look, we missed March Madness before. Last year's tournament wasn't very good. We missed it in 2020. And now it's back and it's the real thing and it's better than ever before. And he wants to get everybody jacked up about that. But from the title of that article, you would never know that David Levy was going to try to normalize sports gambling. <laughs> so he turns from the excitement over March Madness, then to some really loose connection to women's sports, and then to his product, which is a gambling product. He is in the gambling space in it to make money from sports betting. And what's interesting about Levy is that he used to be the CEO of Turner Sports, who is in bed with the NCAA. And you now CBS Turner owned the rights to the March Madness contract, which is running through 2032. And so he makes this connection from the new March Madness to Turner Sports to somehow women's sports, because he was trying to make the case that he was all about looking for 
opportunities in women's sports. And he transitions that loose connection to his work at Genius Sports. And he says, at Genius Sports, we are again working with our partners, Turner, CBS, the NCAA, and now ESPN on the women's side to expand and revolutionize fan engagement on whatever device consumers choose. And I'm going to stop right there. The reason he invoked women's sports is that after this scandal at the women's tournament in 2021 with the disparities in facilities, the NCAA hires this Kaplan firm to do an independent review. It wasn't independent. The NCAA hired them and defined their work. But in connection with that report, there was a companion report by the Dresser Group, which uh, is a sports marketing company. And they were looking at the numbers in women's basketball and looking at how women's basketball could enhance its market value and potential. And one of the potential revenue streams that the Dresser Report recommended exploring was sports betting. And they said, yeah, we know that the NCAA has been opposed to this, but boy, there's a shit ton of money <laughs> in that reservoir. And if we can just start tapping in and direct that money to women's sports, it's going to solve all kinds of problems. So that was a subtle normalization that nobody talked about. I don't even know if anybody read the Dresser report. I read the whole thing. It's about 100 pages long. But when Levy is making that connection to women's sports, he is playing on the Dresser report. He doesn't reference it, but that's exactly what he's doing. And remember, the timing of this article is during March Madness, and the theme is March Madness. And he talks about the Genius Sports 10-year agreement with the NCAA in 2018 in the context of engagement in women's sports. So we're now going to wrap up our financial connection to the gambling industry through gender equity interests. So if we're doing this in the name of gender equity, then we're doing a righteous thing. <laughs> embracing sports betting. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. He goes on and then he really gets to the heart of the matter with this paragraph. And he says, back when I was running Turner, we were able to convince the Time Warner board to do a long-term deal with the NCAA tournament because we recognized and understood that everyone fills out brackets and that was never going to change. This creates a unique level of fan engagement. If you fill out a bracket, you're going to watch. In a similar fashion, Genius also understood that filling out brackets creates office pools and game-by-game -game betting, which is central to our business model. Based on that, we constructed a 10-year relationship with the NCAA. So what Levy is saying there is that they want to capitalize on the betting market, the black market that has existed in NCAA betting. And while people are in that mentality, and that's why this article was published in March of 2022 during the tournament, to capitalize on that momentum and that mentality, we want to take that momentum and we want to get these people hooked. We want to get them involved with other betting opportunities, other betting applications, other betting technology. And if we can pull them in, then that will be great for quote unquote fan engagement. Yeah. So we're just going to you know, get some asses in the seats. Oh, and by the way, we're going to try to get as many people hooked on betting on college sports as we possibly can. And then he says, that's the reason they did a 10-year contract with the NCAA, because they saw that coming. He saw it when he was at Turner. And then when he went to Genius Sports, he wanted to get into a relationship with the NCAA that was a long-term relationship so that as this product was normalized, Genius Sports could make a ton of money off of data that the NCAA claims that it owns. That really is the player's. Data. And then the second thing that the NCAA has done to really try to normalize this and make people feel good about it. How do you feel good about gambling, which NCAA has been demonizing for 70 years? The other thing that they did, and this goes more to really the threat of gambling and the danger in it and the destruction in it for problem gamblers and the most vulnerable people who are drawn to that kind of activity. And that is that to allay the fear, to make the consumer feel safe and secure, you, you toss the consuming public a security blanket. And what's the security blanket that the NCAA and the gambling industry wants to toss to consumers? It's education. We want people to really understand the dangers of sports gambling. We want to sit down with them and really teach them about how harmful this product's going to be to them so that 
they can use it safely. It's, you know, drink responsibly, take opioids responsibly, smoke responsibly. The absurdity of that argument speaks for itself. But the way that they're getting at satisfying this fundamental human need for security, the same way that the tobacco industry did in its messaging, is through these education programs. And so they have partnered with this company called Epic Risk. And this guy from Entain, the big betting company, who was doing this interview with Macmillan on the Lead One website, he was quick to point out when he was talking about this obvious tension between betting and college sports and all the problems that come with it. He said, look, it's all about education. You have to understand it's about education. And we have partnered with this company, Epic Risk Management. <laughs> I'm sure these people think that they're doing the right thing and was founded by a, a guy who had a gambling problem and all that stuff. But they have created a secondary industry to normalize this product. And the way to do that while selling this false sense of security is to say, look, we've got your back. We're here for you. If you need anything from us, education, we are here to catch you when you fall. We are all in this together. It sounds so warm and fuzzy, but you have this epic risk management now becoming a dominant actor in this normalization process. And they have deals with at least 50 NCAA institutions. Their business base is growing. And it's the organization that the NCAA points to in talking about how important education is. And there's clear alignment of interests among all these moving parts in the gambling industry, and I'm including the NCAA. They have a strategy. It's a very sophisticated strategy. It's not dissimilar from the strategy that the tobacco industry used in the 1950s and 1960s. And in that vein, I also want to point out that the tactics that big tobacco used really weren't exposed until the 19. 90s, when a group of state attorneys general got together and launched a campaign to investigate the tobacco industry. And those state attorneys general thought that the tobacco industry was responsible for medical expenses that were really drawing down on the state's resources, and they were trying to recoup some of that money. And they got really aggressive, and they issued subpoenas, and they acquired an enormous vault of documents from Big Tobacco that have been this really important resource for researchers and academicians and lawyers or anybody else who is interested in how big tobacco operates, that is an important resource because it, it really keeps in check big tobacco's dishonesty. And I believe that a similar type of inquiry should be directed to college sports. You know, in, in my discussions with people in the athletes' rights space, they've said, "What do you? what's your solution? What, what do you think ought to happen? And I have some thoughts on some of these issues that are being discussed right now, but I believe that we have put the cart before the horse in talking about some of these structural changes that relate to the nature of the relationship between the profit athletes and the institutions. I think we go back to square one and we challenge every assumption that underlies the current college sports business model and conduct a grand synthesis investigation with people who are leading the investigation who have access to subpoena power and have the motivation to really look into the cave of the NCAA, the Power Five, and all their corporate entanglements. And then until we have a full understanding and an honest understanding of what the truth of the business model is, any change that comes is going to be run through the interests of the power brokers. That's the way it works in America. And as I mentioned in the last episode, the NCAA and Power Five were so, so good in their secret, cynical campaign beginning in 2019 to end the athletes' rights movement through congressional intervention that they have cemented in narratives and quote-unquote guardrails. I'm using this in a different context as the NCAA used it in nil, but basically limits on the range of the debate. And the whole debate has been run through the lens of the interests of the Power Five, the NCAA, and all their corporate partners. And until we go back to the very beginning and explore exactly what those people are doing, and we do it aggressively, and we do a forensic accounting 
of the NCAA national office and all of the Power Five conference offices and all this information that has been inaccessible to the public because all those institutions operate as private nonprofit entities and aren't subject to public records requests. Until we do that and pull this information out into the light of day, we can't form any intelligent judgments about the system or pursue any intelligent policymaking or change in an intelligent way the relationship between the athletes whose labors underwrite this entire industry and the people who are benefiting from it. So with that, I'm just going to close this thing out. And I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Podcast. Take care. 